0: on how you buy, we're going to do uh, something a little different in the feed today. You guys you know usually I'm 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 very protective about putting other things in the feed. Ninety nine percent of the time, when the idea comes up, I go, "I'm sorry, it's just I'm I am so protective." But this one came up, and when I looked at what this podcast is all about, I said, "I think this actually fits totally in." I think the listeners of Beautiful and Honest would love this. This is a podcast called Real Good. Uh, they started this show at the beginning of COVID. They were going to highlight nonprofits and doing work, which is already stuff I think a lot of our fans are going to be interested in. But it really expanded. It really expanded. And a lot of it is about mental health and specifically uh, mental health access. And a lot of it talks with the uh, the director of the Black Mental Health Alliance, I'm sitting here going, man, I've talked so much about this. The show has talked so much about this, this intersection of this type of care and race and class and all these things. I'm going, this seems to me like a conversation that I would love to have on the show and that I bet our listeners would love. So I think you're going to enjoy it. It's a new podcast. It's called Real Good. You can listen, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I really hope you dig it because I did.
1: This is Real Good by US Bank, a podcast about helpers.
2: So, one of the passions that I uh, uh, developed was breaking down myths. And so, even right now, I call myself the Chief Mythbuster.
1: I'm Faith Saley. This show was born out of the coronavirus crisis. In our efforts to understand where work needed to be done to help communities in need during the pandemic, we learned that the issues they were struggling with didn't crop up during COVID. Their are long-standing concerns with roots in racial disparity, socioeconomic opportunity gaps, and so much more. We're here to give you a chance to meet those who are fighting against inequality. They're people who span a wide range of fields and enact very different missions, but one thing remains the same for everyone you're going to meet. They're helpers. They're doing real good. This week, our guest is Dr. Jonathan Shepard, a board certified psychiatrist, the chief medical director of Hope Health Systems, and the president of the Black Mental Health Alliance. The way we think about and treat mental illness has progressed quite a bit in recent years. We've cut down on the microaggressions that reinforce stigma, and we've increased access to telehealth services that break down the barriers associated with visiting a therapist in person. It might not seem like a big deal to many of us, but for a busy parent who can't get someone to watch the kids, something like video calling a therapist makes a world of difference. It's worth celebrating, but it's also worth acknowledging that we weren't really clearing a high bar and there's still a long way to go. When it comes to mental health, we're still getting bogged down in the easy conversations. Sure, there's plenty of stigma surrounding mental health to break down, but why aren't we addressing the cost barrier for mental health treatment or making sure people can walk into a therapist's office and see someone who looks like them? Well. Dr. Shepherd is. Dr. Jonathan Shepherd, if if I were seeing you as a patient, would I be calling you Dr. Shepherd or would I call you Jonathan?
2: You call me Dr. Shepherd.
1: Okay. Well, I'm I'm sure today will be very therapeutic for me, but if I may, I'm going to call you Jonathan. Is that all right?
2: That's fine. <laughs>
1: and and I want to start out very superficially and tell you that you appear exactly how I would want my psychiatrist to appear. You have on glasses, you have on a tie, but it's the cardigan. I feel like it's the cardigan that clinches it. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I can tell my feelings to you. You just have to change out of your dress shoes into your sneakers and we'll get going. All right. (laughs) So so can you tell me about where you grew up?
2: So, yeah, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. Chicago is home for me. The suburb is named Homewood, Illinois. And I spent uh, pretty much 25 to maybe 30 years there. Uh, before moving into the city uh, for medical school. So I am probably say about 25 years I I grew up there. And uh, it's a small suburban town, uh, primarily uh, Caucasian. I was the uh, only Black male in many of my classes throughout elementary and junior high school.
1: Wow. Uh, How did that shape you?
2: Oh, it shaped me uh, tremendously uh, because I had to know who... I am who I was at that time. um, I was one of the people who um, really tried to befriend uh, people of different races, ethnicities. I had a lot of uh, Jewish friends. I attended their bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. Uh, So I was one who really understood the importance, even at that young age, of how to be able to uh, have different friends of all cultures. Um, It was quite a... Uh, mix for me i'll be honest because being raised in a black family and having a uh, a, a strong faith based uh, uh commitment within my family that was primarily african-american so when i got around my uh my black friends in in my churches that they they, they would tell me that i spoke differently or i would act differently or i would dress differently i would have on the cardigan uh that media them were not wearing and so <laughs> Uh, So there there was a lot of back and forth where people would say I did not sound black. I didn't look black. I didn't I didn't look the part. So I was teased quite a bit. uh, And that didn't feel good. I'll be honest with you. But it really shaped me to the person who I am today to be comfortable in who I am and not to allow people to define me based off of my skin color.
1: It's so interesting. I don't know how early you decided to go into mental health and psychiatry, but to think of you as, as a kid already like a burgeoning uh, therapist, already knowing how to navigate communication with very different kinds of people.
2: Absolutely. You know, it, it, even as I look back at it now, you know, my, 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 my past day was really shaping up who I am today. And that's why I tell parents today, you have to be so careful how you shape your children because you never know what they're gonna become later on in life. And so it really is incumbent upon our parents to really allow your children as many experiences as possible so that they'll know how to be able to interact with different types of people, whether they look like you or don't, whether they believe like you or don't, Uh, it really has shaped my uh, career and uh, yeah, I must say, you know, I'm thankful for two parents uh, who really raised me right.
1: Did you have experiences with people knowing people who sought help with mental health as a kid? Did you did you know anybody who went to a therapist? Did you know what a psychiatrist was?
2: I knew what a psychiatrist was. I honestly didn't know too many people who sought out mental health services. Uh, you know, you have those people within your families or people who, you know, who may have had depression. Uh, I can remember very clearly where uh, someone within our faith organization, she actually had a stroke. And uh, I saw how the stroke changed her demeanor. She used to be very calm, very quiet. And then when she came back, uh, her personality was like a, like a, a 180. She was very bubbly, friendly. I was like, I remember as a kid, like, what happened to her? You know, it, it, thinking to myself, like, like how does someone change? And so when I look back at it now, uh, based off of my, uh, my acquired knowledge, I look and see how medical issues such as a stroke or such as other uh, things that could happen that affect the brain changes people. So I remember that very clearly, not being able to explain it at that time, but knowing that something was off or something is different. So, yeah. And then I also saw that with my own grandmother. My grandmother had Alzheimer's disease and she had to come and live in my home or in my family's home for three years. So I watched the deterioration of a woman who helped to raise me, not even know who I was by the time that we had to unfortunately put her into a skilled nursing facility. So, again, those experiences helped shape me to know that mental illness is real even though I did mm-hmm. not know people who were going to receive that treatment.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sorry about your grandmother and and you must have also watched as a child the decline how the decline of your grandmother affected your own parents' mental health.
2: It it did. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I saw how change changed my mother. That uh, my grandmother was my mother's mother. And so my mother was at the time she was handling raising uh, me and my brother, handling her own mother. Then she was also pursuing her own uh, degree, her actually her own doctorate degree. And what? So, yeah, right, you know.
1: <laughs> I love your mother.
2: <laughs> you know, it, it is amazing. Actually, during the pandemic, my family, we created what's called the Shepherd Empowerment uh, and Training Institute. Training and Empowerment Institute had the words reversed. And so my mother was one of our trainers. And so she started talking about her experience during that, during that time. And I actually forgot. I was like, my mouth was like, I forgot about all those things that she went through.
1: Okay. No offense, Jonathan, but I'm going to skip talking to you as a therapist. (laughs) I want to talk to your mom.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm telling you, she, she balanced all of that. uh, Even having to travel uh, sometimes several miles to do her internships and her practicums in order to be able to get her doctorate education. And uh, so I remember one summer where she literally had to go back and forth. Uh, Sometimes one way, it was two hours because we lived up in Chicago, but where she was getting her degree was at Illinois State, which is down about two hour drive one way. And uh, that one summer, she had to go down there every single day and come right back home. And so I forgot about all these things. So yeah you know i'm I'm cut from some good cloth here.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know one of the themes in in this show that I get to do is is learn story learn people's origin stories and mm-hmm. man, it won't surprise you, but uh people's parents and their grandparents what they they're so important, they're yeah. so meaningful. and the most extraordinary people come from extraordinary parents and
3: grandparents.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm thankful for them. My grandmother was an extraordinary woman. Uh, she lived to the age of 86 years old, was an entrepreneur in her own right. Uh, people on the block knew her as uh, the person to go get uh, a candy or back in the day, they called it freezer cups. Basically, it was like slushies, but she used to create them. And so <laughs> she was her own business owner <laughs> in the day. Uh, I remember that. So we would come over there. And so we'd be the ones taking the money from the people, and uh, yeah, she did quite well. Even people tried to mimic what she was doing and never <laughs> could outsell her. So that's the entrepreneurial I, spirit.
3: I,
1: I love a business plan that involves slushies. <laughs> um, so, so you make your way through University of Illinois for med school and, and, and you get to Johns Hopkins where you're, you were enrolled in the fellowship of childhood and adolescent psychiatry. What, what was the reaction from, from friends and family when you, when you said, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor and this is the kind of doctor I'm going to be.
2: <laughs> well, let's to say it was a mixed response. Uh, Cause some of my colleagues, they talked about me and teased me because They said, shepherd. You didn't go to medical school to become a psychiatrist. And so they looked at psychiatry as kind of being the lesser of the specialties. Uh, And so that actually did play on me. Um, When I went into medical school, I wanted to become a pediatrician. I always wanted to work with youth and with children, but I didn't know that it was going to be through psychiatry. And in medical school, I took to the behavioral sciences. I took to the different neurosciences that dealt with the brain development and just the biology of the brains. I love those type of subjects. And I really just studied those even more so than others. So when it came time to choose, my friends were like, well, why are you going into psychiatry? And, you know, I really had to battle through it and say, you know, this is where I feel comfortable. Again, it's, it's about knowing who you are, being comfortable in decision that this is what I am called to do. This is where my passion is. This is where my purpose is. And so once I let go of what people were saying, things just started to fall in place. Um, You know, yes, I was not the smartest in medical school. I had many of my friends who were smarter than I, uh, but you know what they say, uh, the person... Uh, who still graduates last in medical school, what they call them, they call them doctors. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I was not last. All right. I'll put that out there. (laughs) Be clear about that. I was not last, but I was not at the top either. (laughs) And so once I let go of it, things have started falling in place. Uh, People started asking for me. They could see the passion. I ended up staying in Chicago for my residency. And I really was uh, comfortable in staying in Chicago faith. I really was just like, okay, I'm I'm going to do my fellowship in Chicago. But it was when I traveled to Johns Hopkins, I was able to interview and I could tell the interview went well and they could see that I was uh, passionate about what I wanted to do. And I told them when I walked in there, and I think that this was really what got their attention. I told them what I needed. I said, if I, if I come out here.
1: This sounds like my first date with my husband, but go ahead.
2: <laughs> Hilarious. So I told him what I needed. That's why I said, you know, I'm coming out of here. I don't have any biological family out here, uh, but I would need support systems. And I know what support systems I need to be successful. Doctors are are smart people. They're intelligent people. So, yes, I I, I know you already know that I have the intelligence to be here, but I want you to know I know what I need to survive here. And that is to have a a faith based community, which I had already uh, established uh, here in Baltimore. And I said, I want to make sure I have connections. So when things get rough and hard, I know who I can lean on. And that, I believe, really sold them as to allow me to go from the middle of the pack in medical school to the number one hospital uh, and program in the country.
1: I hear this theme throughout your life that you got teased. You got teased when you were a kid, right, for maybe not being black enough or not talking the way people expected you to. Then you get teased, presumably by your peers, saying, what kind of doctor are you going to be? Yeah. You You know, know, I, I, um, I, as I was researching to talk to you, I read a story of a black psychiatrist, a woman who said that she encountered in her community when she said she was go- choosing to be a, a psychiatrist of people saying, but that's not a real doctor. That's not that's not why you went to medical school. How are you going to show up for for the African-American community if you're being that kind of doctor?
2: And she's absolutely right. And that's what I was teased about. And even not just for my peers, but having such a strong faith community. So, you know, there were people who said, well, why are you going to psychiatry? You know, you believe in God. You know, God can answer all of your uh, fears. He can, he can take care of all your mental problems. And so I would literally get even uh, teased there. And so one of the passions that I uh, uh, developed was breaking down myths. And so even right now, I call myself the chief myth buster.
1: No, Dr. Chief Mythbuster. Dr. Chief, absolutely. (laughs)
2: You know, because I am, I know that that is part of what I am here on earth to do. That is to break up stigma, to inform people. And let me tell you, when I became comfortable in doing that, things began to shift. They began, people began to listen to me. Uh, they begin to understand what the difference is between a psychiatrist and a psychologist and a therapist
1: and a minister
2: <laughs> and, and a Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, you're right. You know, that is one of the things that I've been able to encounter the teasing, but I've been able to turn it around. And for those who are even listening, you know, people will you know talk about you. They will tease you. But that is only to help make you stronger, to make, make sure that you are sharpening your skills to know why you are doing what you're doing.
1: So you, you get to Johns Hopkins. You choose to make Baltimore your new home. How did you become linked up with, the, with BMHA, which is the Black Mental Health Alliance? Clearly, that is, is part of your purposeful path.
2: Absolutely. So I became involved with the Black Women Health Alliance as a fellow, and I began attending some of their events Uh, and then kind of membership dropped off because their uh, executive director uh, transitioned. And so uh, I became involved again when they hired a new executive director and she asked for me to be a part of the board. But we clicked. And not only did she uh, ask for me to, to consider joining the board, she said, you know, we need a board president. And unfortunately, we're in a, in, a, in a point right now, 2014, where we need to revamp the board. And so I was part of that uh, team that helped to uh, reignite the fire under the Black Mental Health Alliance. Um, and so in 2014, I worked uh, alongside her name, uh, Jan Peters, Jan, uh, Jan Desper Peters. I want to make sure I give a shout out to her. And so it was through her we began developing, laying the foundation, laying the groundwork Uh, And then, uh, I'll just say this very quickly, Freddie Gray was murdered in 2015 in Baltimore. And many people know about that. And that was the pivotal point when the Black Mental Health Alliance stood up in our Baltimore neighborhoods and said, enough is enough. And we were here to be able to provide the mental health care that our community needed. I'll never forget, I was leading out a, uh, a, a, a forum And that was the first time I ever left a community forum where people were very aggressive towards me. And it really grew me up very quickly. And I had to be able to answer the people's questions with uh, transparency, with humility, and with some type of uh, force because people were blaming other folks. And I said, listen, this is not the time for us to be blaming others right now. We need to heal as a community. And so that's how my upbringing, if you would, got uh, started in the Black Mental Health Alliance, and we've we've continued to build on it ever since then.
3: Thank
1: you for saying Freddie Gray's name. It's good to it's good to remember those names. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, we're we're gonna delve further into black mental health specifically, but to sort of set the tone for us, can we talk about how prominent mental illness is in the U.S.? What what do we consider mental illness?
2: Well, mental illness is a true disorder where it is a malfunction of the brain. That's what mental illness is. And so a true disorder is when a person is no longer functioning properly. So in my talks, I talk about how distress is different from disorder. All of us as human beings will be distressed. Everyone encounters distress. But if you stay distressed long enough along that line of, uh, or continuum or along that line of journey of being distressed, you will then hit the pit stop of disorder. And that's what mental illness was set in. And disorder is when you're not functioning properly. I'll say that again. And one in four Americans experience mental illness. So it is quite prevalent.
1: There is no one alive who doesn't know someone experiencing mental illness, just statistically.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And if you don't, that's because you're either your head is buried in the sand, or they're not yeah. telling you.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, or you're in denial, right? Or
2: in, den- yep, in denial. Or in denial.
1: So, when when people are dealing with mental illnesses, how likely are they to seek treatment?
2: Well, it depends on where you are. Unfortunately. Um, so there are so many barriers to uh, to receiving treatment, and it really has nothing to do with uh, race or ethnicity, uh, because in our country, healthcare is tied into a, uh, employment, and which is really backwards. Healthcare is a right, not a privilege, and so we have many people out there who are working part time jobs just to make ends meet. But because they're working so many part-time jobs, they don't have health care benefits. And then if they do get the health care benefits, such as through uh, EAP, employment, uh, employment-assisted programs, they don't cover enough for the mental health issues. How is it that you're going to deal with depression and you only get five sessions? What? Yeah.
1: yeah. Talk <laughs> fast, I right, think. You know, right, you Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you know, I have a statistic here that says only 43% of people reach out for treatment or care. This is according to the National Association of Mental Illness, which frankly and sadly seems high, given mm. what you just said. Uh, you know, that's not quite half of people who who reach out for help. And and the, the, the burden is on the person who already feels, is already experiencing disorder, right? Right.
2: Right. Exactly.
1: So so the the hurdles are indeed, as you said, um, employment. Right. And and the insurance problems and the cost. Mm -hmm. Um, What else what else do you think is a hurdle?
2: Well, stigma uh, is a hurdle. And that's one of the things that we've seen over the last really five years and maybe a little bit more than that, where stigma has been continued to be reduced as more people are transparent about the different mental health stressors that they've had especially through the pandemic. You know, let's think about that. You know, Michelle Obama even came out and talked about how she had low-grade depression. Uh, so when you have certain notables coming out talking about their, uh, uh, their their battle with depression or battle with mental illness, it really has uh, helped in reducing some of the stigma. Think about uh, Prince Harry. Uh, you know, he's, uh, and I believe even his brother, uh, has talked about, Mental illness and raising awareness of mental illness across the globe uh, as they uh, work to end uh, that stigma. And so that is what we need. We need people who will stand up and talk about that. Um, another barrier is healthcare disparities. So even if you want to go look out, and, uh, and, and what I mean by healthcare disparities, accessibility. You know, for clinics, accessibility, uh, for people to find out a person who can help and provide mental health care. Um, so, if you're living in a neighborhood that don't have health care clinics, how are you going to find a mental health professional? Um, or, uh, you know, in, in relation to the personnel, uh, what I mean by personnel, we don't have a lot of doctors, we don't have a lot of mental health professionals who are wanting to treat or I should say professionals, healthcare professionals who want to go into mental health who are not wanting to treat mental health or mental illnesses. So those are some of the other obstacles.
1: When we treat mental illness, what kind of ripple effects does it have?
2: When we treat mental illness, what type of ripple effects does it have? Uh, You know, again, we, we have to look at what mental illness that we're treating. You know, you think about Like I mentioned to my, uh, mentioned to to, to the audience, to your audience earlier, we think about dementia. Dementia is a mental illness. The ripple effect is great. It's great not only just on the person who's suffering the dementia, but the family who's caring for them. I mean, again, we talked about my my mother went through where I figured, I think about it now, she probably went through a depressive episode. Because of just she watched her own mother struggle with recognizing who she is, recognizing who her grandchildren are. Um, so the the cost is heavy, and unfortunately, the cost is probably even more so on the family than it is on the person affected by the illness. Um, so there there's a lot of emotional toil. Um, there's a lot of financial toil also uh, because. It a toll, I should say, because it really does cost to be able to care for someone. A lot of mental illness is chronic. So when you think about chronic diseases, you think about how often you have to continue to make sure that you're getting the healthcare services that are needed. So the toll is high.
1: So so we shared the statistic of only 43 percent of people seeking help for mental illness. And the statistic for Black Americans is thirty percent. So the big question, Jonathan, is why do you think Black men and women are less likely to seek out mental health treatment? Because surely that's your that's your uh, your mandate at the Black right. Mental Health Alliance, right?
2: Right. Absolutely. And there's so many different uh, obstacles, and so we already talked about some of those. Number one is cost. So. One of the things I read up that I really helped to now uh, break up this myth is that black people don't want to seek out mental health care. Uh, that's just not a true statement. Number one reason is because of cost; They can't afford it. So even though they may know that they need it, they can't afford it. How can they afford it if they don't have the job health care is attached on to their employment? If they're unemployed, now they got to go to the emergency room for services. So we have to make sure that we understand that we don't get so caught up in stigma. Stigma, stigma is real, but the real true barrier is cost. And so let's, let's deal with that. And we have to deal with that in, in, in legislative bodies on how we can reduce this, this, these barriers. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think, I think even, even people for whom it, it cost is not an issue and that is an issue for most. It's the cost of time. It's figuring mm-hmm. out whom to talk to, how right. to get there. Right. It, 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 and, and you're all, you already need help. Like it all seems overwhelming.
2: It is. It is so. <laughs> so, right, if you it's especially even here in Baltimore, where mass mass transportation is not a premium, uh, even though the the different ideas that have been uh, floated around, they they destroyed them. And so you can't get around from the west side of Baltimore to the east side of Baltimore. So how am I supposed to be able to get the prescriptions? How am I supposed to get the mental health care that I need? Because now uh, transportation is a barrier. Uh, Stigma, go ahead.
1: You have mentioned faith a lot, and Mm -hmm. clearly your faith is very important to you. What is the, that must be a tricky role that faith and spirituality plays in, in the lives of some of of the black people whom you're trying to help, right? I'm being careful with my language because you can speak to this better than I, but there's an idea that you already articulated. Someone might say, why do you need to see a therapist? God's here, God will help. Right,
2: right, 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 or just pray it away. So you're absolutely right. So spirituality, faith is a large component of most African-Americans or most black people. Uh, That is where we find our solace. That's also where we find a lot of our social interactions. Uh, so if you think about it, it was within the faith-based community uh, during the times of slavery where people felt like they uh, were uh, important. That's where their self-esteem was built. And so a lot of that has carried down. And again, it still is a place where we feel important, where our self-esteem is built. So if you can imagine in the pandemic, when the church doors were closed... Where did people go? They didn't, you know, 9-11 hit. Everybody was running to church. Uh, the different other crises that occurred. But now when the pandemic hit, you couldn't go to those places. So people were really left out kind of high and dry and really stuck. And so that's why it really has some devastating effects, which is why I speak to people and let them know that we have to be careful on how much we put into, um, uh, 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 well, I, I'll kind of go backtrack what I want to say. We have to be uh Uh, uh, strong in our faith. Yes. But we have to be careful that we don't knock down uh, people who are using mental health treatment along with their faith. That's what I want to say. There is room for God, a pastor and a therapist. No, they are. They don't uh, operate in conflict. And is
1: that a message you find yourself having to share with people over and over?
2: Absolutely. And so when I say that, people say, oh, I didn't know that they, all three could exist. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you can have your faith and in, uh, in in your spiritual being, God, for me, uh, the, the pastor, the the person who's a spiritual leader, and then you have your therapist. I mean, it's just like when you look at finances, you need to have a good attorney, you need to have a good certified public accountant, and you need to have a good doctor. So there'll be all these things that need to be yeah. in your repertoire to have Is
1: there... Is there also a problem of mistrust? Because because you've said the state of African-American mental health is one that is progressing toward understanding the importance of mental health, but but still has to dispel cultural mistrust. So mm-hmm. for non-BIPOC people listening, what kind of what is the mistrust that exists for black communities?
2: Well, the mistrust occurs because there are not people who look like them when it comes to um uh, providers. So when you're going in to talk to someone to under to help them understand what's going on with you, so there's a misinterpretation. Um, I can use a case for an example. When I was in residency training, a black woman was going to a white psychiatrist, and she was uh, telling the the white psychiatrist, "You know, I hear God speaking to me." The white psychiatrist thought she was psychotic and put her on an antipsychotic medication that was giving her major side effects, was hurting her. She came to me. I understood what she was talking about. We stopped the medication. I mean, it just
1: because what she was talking about was what being prayerful and
2: right, right, something that related to her faith. You know, she God speaks to me. You know, He tells me what to. Do, you know, so I understood what she was referring to. She wasn't. She wasn't psychotic. She wasn't delusional. She was not having bizarre. Uh, uh, dreams or or, or delusions, to say dreams, but bizarre facts or beliefs. Uh, She was expressing how she was raised. And so those those are examples of why there's a lot of cultural mistrust. There's a lot of history, too. You know, you look at the different instances that have occurred where Blacks were abused, where Blacks were misused, where Blacks were taken advantage of. Uh, You know, you think about the Tuskegee study where blacks were purposely not uh, provided treatment to see the effects of syphilis. You see see where black women um, had hysterectomies uh, without their approval just to figure out uh, how a surgeon could uh, better their ways in learning how to remove the uterus from women. That that's crazy, you know, and and people may not know that that actually that did happen to black women who were institutionalized. Uh, there there's so many atrocities uh, that have occurred, uh, and again, those are so so some of that is historical, but then you think of present day examples also.
1: Shifting into more, the more positive, right? The steps we can take. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love for you to talk about um, something that you and your family has done that you call shop talks. Can you, can you tell me what that is?
2: Yeah. So within the black mental health Alliance, we've done um, shop talks, which has been in conjunction with Kaiser Permanente and we've been doing it for a few years now. And so that's when we go into beauty and barbershops and we allow customers to come in the people from the community to come in, we have a keynote speaker who will deal with a particular topic uh, and try to keep it uh, engaging, not lecture style. And we talk about mental health issues that are going on within the uh, communities. Uh, So, you know, I'm looking over here now, uh, one of the ones we just had uh, this last week was Young Black Minds Matter. uh, And we were talking about how to be able to release toxic stress. Um, emotional pain, past trauma, uh, you know.
1: And this is in a barbershop or, or yes. a beauty parlor?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I got to know, are people getting their hair cut and their nails done while the conversations oh, are going I,
2: on? I, I believe so, absolutely. <laughs>
1: that is the best kind of multitasking.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: And, and so what you're doing there is talking about absolutely meaningful things and meeting your community where they are Ma- and making right. it easy, right? Making right. it easy right. to 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 he- learn about health and reach out for help.
2: Right. And that's what we got to do. And we know that it's possible to do. Uh, it's not too much of us to go into the communities. They can't get to us. We just talked about all those barriers. So we got to go to them so they can get the help. And so in doing so it alleviates some of those pressures, it alleviates some of those worries. Black Mental Health Alliance has also uh, taken on uh, the role of being a, uh, a supporter of em- uh, emancipation, emotional em- emancipation circles, EEC, uh, which was uh, created um, through a uh, person out there in California, I'm blanking on her name, I believe it's Dr. Grills. And so what this uh, group is, it's a, it's a supportive group um, kind of like group therapy, where Blacks come together to discuss toxic stress, talk about racial trauma. Uh, and it's just Blacks. Uh, so it's a safe, a safe space for Blacks to come to talk about the different um, issues that they're encountering within their neighborhoods. And so we do have one that has been continuing on actually since the Freddie Gray uh, incident or murder uh, in 2015. And so, Black Mental Health Alliance has uh, has been the, the major supporter of that particular EEC.
1: You know, I hardly need to tell you um, we're, we're all living through the time of COVID. Um, you've said that you and your colleagues are working at absolute capacity, trying to 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 treat as many people as you can and, and be accessible. You're it sounds like you might be working on the Sabbath some days, um, doing yeah. the Lord's work, my friend. <laughs>
3: um, right.
1: Can you tell me how access to telehealth? Services has shifted through COVID and and how that how you've seen that change personally?
2: Yeah, telehealth services has really been a lifesaver for many of the patients and families. So we had to change really on a dime. And thankfully, we were already providing mental health services through telehealth. Uh, We just were not doing it at the rate and the volume that we're doing it at now. So we went from in-person sessions. Uh, the week of March 15th, and then by March 22nd, everything was telehealth uh, after we got that public health emergency where things were shut down. So all of our sessions during that time were all telehealth. Uh, Back in August, I believe, I started allowing people to come back in for in-person sessions uh, face-to-face. I'm primarily doing about 90% still telehealth sessions right now, uh, but I do have new persons, new evaluations who come in, or for people who I have not seen in a year, I ask them to come in so I can get their vital signs and other things so I can see them, uh, so I can make sure that I'm not missing anything that I could not see via a a screen. But let me tell you- And yet, yeah, go go ahead. ahead. I was gonna tell you, people satisfaction is actually even better with telehealth sessions, um, which is very odd, because you would think that it would be worse but actually, people are loving the telehealth sessions. It's more accessible, um, and let me tell you, they take longer too. Faith, um, I, normally I see people in thirty minutes. People want to talk to me now. Uh, they see me. It's like, well, you know, how are you doing, Doctor Shepard? Oh, people don't normally. People were not doing that before the pandemic. It was like, how, how can I get out? You know, they were scared to come to office. How can I get out of here as soon as as fast as possible? But now people are asking you, how are you doing? How are you managing? How's your family? Uh, And then I get a chance to see inside their homes and see how they're living. And that actually adds a whole nother aspect to the care. So it really has been uh, transformational.
1: I'd like to know more about that. Can you share maybe a specific story of how somebody you, you may have thought you knew um, has been illuminated for you because you can literally see inside their home?
2: Yes. Uh, several examples <laughs> come to buy. Uh, you know, you, 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 you get a chance to see what um, the living styles and the living environment is for some of the families. Uh, you get the chance to see the different distractions uh, that are occurring, uh, going on within the home. You know, you know that mom and dad are there, but you didn't know about this other family member that was living there or a sister. Or you even get a chance to see what they're doing when they should be in school or how they're even, um, uh, uh, well, I should say the environment in which they're learning in. So everybody's doing, just about everybody is doing um, uh, virtual learning for school right now. So some of them are in their bedrooms with all this no lighting and things. I was like, wait a minute, you can't learn in your bedroom like this. You know, oh, okay, no, I just, you know, that that's, you know, they just kind of said, I'm setting the mood or mood lighting. I'm like, we can't have mood lighting for <laughs> academics. <laughs> so, so some of those people I've had to, you know, help them to move to either the dining room table. But let me tell you, it's hard because what do you do with a family of four or family who has four children Different ages; they all need four different devices. Uh, yeah, who who has four different computers? Yeah, in a home. Yeah, or people just to utilize for school. So parents were really, really struggling during this time.
1: Oh my friend, you don't need to tell me, and I'm and I'm and I'm pretty lucky, you know. Yeah, who's got the who's got the strength of broadband to support right. that? <laughs> Much less the <laughs> mental support, right? Um. Do you have um you know you shared the story of of the the woman who was tr- who was treated by a, a white um doctor and who didn't understand that she was talking to God. Um do you, do you have any other specific stories you'd like to share that you think um that you think sort of illuminate how how crucial it is for for black Americans to focus on their mental health. Maybe somebody, I, I don't know, you know, your stories, but maybe somebody who came to you reluctantly um, and, and found his or her life turned around by, by shedding the, the stigma of, of approaching a psychiatrist.
2: Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll just share this and I'll keep it uh, broad and short as possible. Uh, children who come to me with ADHD and their parents are struggling about whether or not do they put their child on medication to treat the disorder. It really touches me each time that a a child will come back and tell me, Dr. Shepard, I can finally learn now. Their grades go from D's and F's to A's and B's. And these are black boys and black girls. Um, I mean, it just, I I just had a session with a mother Uh, either Monday or just Thursday of last week, I can't remember now, but she was telling me how her child was below uh, uh, age-appropriate reading level uh, for his grade. Now, he's far exceeding. He's at the top of the class. He's reading like two, three grade levels ahead of his peers. That's simply now because the ADHD is treated and now he can learn. Now he can remember what he was reading He's not so easily distracted. Those are the stories that you don't hear about. But that is why I am in mental health. That's why I do what I do.
1: You know, in talking to you about, about Black mental health specifically, it occurs to me, you know, on this show, we, we talk about how, how people of color, it's given, they, they deserve equal access to housing, to education, to, to health care. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, physical health care and and financial literacy and, and and entrepreneurship and all of those things are not tinged with shame. And all of those things everybody agrees are empowering. And it's this it's this step. It's what you do that needs also to be seen as empowering, like like I'm a person of color and it is only fair that I get mental health access. Yes. not something that should be whispered about.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, again, that speaks back to the tenets I talked about, the PCWC.
1: Hold on. Hold on. I, wanna, I, I wrote this down because I didn't want to forget. P, potential. C, being able to cope, right? Mm-hmm. W is being able to work and show up with your whole self for work. And C is community, offering something to your community. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. You I didn't want
1: to forget that. I love that PCWC.
2: You got it. So if I can help people to understand their PCWC, engage their PCWC on a daily basis, then I know that people are going to be living better. This is one of the things that I do every morning. I assess my potential. Shepard, how are you dealing with the stresses that are going on in your life? Because we're going to have them. Are you ready to work? Are you ready to make a contribution? And when people really understand that Uh, It really speaks to all facets of your life. And so we just got to make sure people are following through and then have the ability to follow through. I think that that's also important.
1: I love that your last name is Shepard. You are so you are so well named for 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 <laughs> shepherding a lot of lucky folks. Um, uh, I never like leaving a therapist's office. I could talk for days. So I have to tell you, I'm I'm sad. I'm sad that our time has uh has ended. And um and you know what? I, you didn't even make me cry.
2: Oh no, <laughs> that's not my job. <laughs> My my job is that even when you are crying, let's figure out how do we turn those tears into some type of meaning uh, to drive you forward. Um, I yeah. believe
1: you. We're big criers in my home. Good. good uh, Crying's good. Crying's yeah,
2: good. Yeah, <laughs> it is. it It is. I tell people it releases a lot of the stress and a lot of the things that have been building up uh, with inside of you. So, yeah, a good cry is necessary, especially for men
1: a good cry and I'm giving you a good virtual hug too. Right. <laughs> um, I am I'm am really really happy and grateful I got to talk to you today. Thank you Jonathan.
2: Thank you Faith. I appreciate the conversation. I think it was insightful and I hope it was impactful for all those who listen.
1: PCWC my friend.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Um, all right. I, I guess I have to let you go. I don't want to, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so happy to be connected and this is a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much.
2: No problem. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully all, hopefully all the material makes sense to you. And hopefully we were able, I was able to, you know, shed some light on this subject for your, for your listeners.
1: Absolutely. Listen, take care. A lot of people rely on you. Stay safe. Thank you. Workplace stressors affect every employee. Ensuring the people you work with have access to mental health treatment is in the DNA of work at US Bank. We spoke to US Bank's Greg Cunningham and Carrie Ackerman about the wide ranging meaning of providing mental health services and the ways the work they're doing can truly save lives. We also spoke to Greg about an incredible initiative at the bank called Access Commitment that's aimed at closing the racial wealth gap. If, if we've learned anything over the course of the past two seasons, it's that intersectionality is key. And this has deep ties to our talk with Dr. Shepard. So we wanted to share that conversation with you as well. So, Greg... Uh, it's wonderful to see you again i I think I think this episode uh actually makes you the most tenured guest in real goods history so congratulations thank
4: you I'm shocked that you've had me back <laughs> so many times
1: <laughs> no man you're gonna have your own podcast soon it's it's I think it'll be like called like really really good or maybe real great. I don't know. You can take it up a It's a
4: scary thought, but I love this sentiment.
1: <laughs> All right, we we have a a big wide ra- ranging topic to jump into, yeah. which is US Bank access commitment. So, yep. I want I want to hear more about it. I want to get a good sense of what US Bank is doing. Um and it's this huge word access, right? We've been, we've been talking about access for the last two seasons. Yes. Like I've heard you say access is education, right? We've said access is housing. Access is, is broadband. Yes. Um, it's, it's dignity. It's financial literacy. So, so in, in context of this initiative, what is the goal of access commitment? What's it trying to solve for?
4: it's creating a pathway to opportunity faith and you know we we, we have talked about this a number of times and i I've, you know we have this burning feeling that you know there there are so many uh conversations happening around systems change and for us it became this conversation about how do we look inward um for systems change like how did we need to be um, different. How did we need to collaborate and work um, differently? And as we thought about what system change we could have the most impact on, um, you know, it felt like this notion of, you know, the the leveraging the core competencies of the bank in a way that made a real difference in people's lives was truly meaningful. And the racial wealth gap, which you know we've talked about before, which is over a trillion dollars. Um, there's a ten to one ratio in uh, the household wealth of white families and black families, and it's a, it, it, it's such a, a pervasive issue. It affects every single one of us as Americans. Um, it hampers our economy. It hampers our, hampers our ability uh, to really be at full prosperity as a nation. And so, for us, you know, looking at that, it became this notion of how do we create greater access capital for small businesses? How do we create greater pathways to home ownership um, for people and families? Um, How do we create um, a platform for financial literacy so that we can ensure that kids and families are actually having conversations about wealth um, that weren't historically happening, um, that we could be a catalyst to help those conversations? Um, And so it became sort of this company-wide initiative, and I'm proud to say that the entire bank is involved. Um, every single one of our business lines is, is touching the work um, in some way. Um, but access faith is really our way of, um, the access commitment is our way of living up to our purpose as an organization, which is about powering human potential. And what should be on the end of that sentence is for all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like to think of, you know, when you, when you heal the deepest wounds, you heal the entire body right and so if we can fix things like the racial wealth gap we will go a long way in helping to address um many of the what we you know am air quoting um systemic issues that we talk about in our society and help us all thrive
1: what you're saying you said that inequity hampers all of us and and yes and, oh greg if only that message could be absorbed by all of us. I mean, even you know, you're talking about society as a whole. But I, when I when I became a mother, I remember someone saying, "You're only." When I became a mother twice over, someone said, "You're only as happy as your most unhappy child." Right? And 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 so yes. goes our country.
4: Exactly. You know it. You know I tell people all the time, like those neighborhoods that we typically drive by and look out our windows and shake our head and, you know, wonder what those are actually your neighborhoods too. (laughs) Those are our neighborhoods. That's our community. We're all, and when you feel that you're in community with others, um, their issues become your issues and they become our issues. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the spirit of what this, this access commitment is about. It's about, You know, how we can all sort of lean into um, this incredible disparity that is a drag on our entire economy, um, anywhere from four to six percent in GDP growth, um, you know, has been impacted by this disparity over the last eight years or so. And so we've, we've all got a responsibility. And even if your motivations are purely selfish. Um, there's benefit for all of us yeah. wanting to see these disparities lessen because it will impact all of our yeah, households. Yeah, I
1: like the way you and U.S. Bank are, are framing it, which is which is positive. It's this. This isn't this isn't shining a light on on something negative in in order to make people feel bad. This is hey everybody, let's right. shine a light on this <laughs> and we all do better. It's it's rising tides, right? Rising tides lift all boats. Yes. So I think yes. I heard you. Um, kind of break the this down into three pillars if, if i heard you correctly it's access to capital mm-hmm. access to technical support and to mentorship is that right
4: that's a huge part of it and here it, let me say it this way there are three um there are three real i think themes um, in the access commitment one is how do you help um, uh, individuals and families um in in their ability to build wealth. The second one is how do you help businesses um, grow and scale and create jobs, which creates economic vitality, which leads to more vibrant communities? And then the third part, Faith, was really thinking about our employees. Um, so I'll share just a small example in, in each one. In terms of individuals and families, you know that is everything from the number one way to 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 build wealth or the way wealth gets transferred in this this country is through home ownership, right? Um, it gets passed down from generation to generation. It is you know arguably one of the the most foundational way to build wealth in this country. Well, there is a huge gap in in home ownership in black and white communities in particular, and so we have this this initiative called the Dream Initiative which is really going to help um, educate members of the minority community, and particularly the Black community, around the importance of building wealth. And that starts with not moving people into a mortgage, but it starts with understanding why building wealth is important and what are the necessary steps to help build wealth. So it starts with financial education. It starts with us partnering with organizations like Operation Hope. And I know you've had John uh, John mm-hmm. O'Brien on your program. And they are going to allow us to have financial coaches in our branches, so people who are from these communities helping individuals in the communities um, answer their questions, um, understand what are the steps to take to build your credit score that will lead you to being able to qualify for a mortgage. So moving people into to home ownership. In terms of small businesses, we're making a huge investment in um, a community development financial institutions, putting Um, resources in their pockets so that they can make loans to micro-businesses, those businesses that have less than 20 employees, those businesses who need loans of less than $50,000, those businesses who would never be able to get a loan at US Bank. We need to make sure that we get resources into the hands of those businesses because as you know, um, Faith, as an entrepreneur, most people don't work at large companies. Most people work in small businesses. That is the backbone of our economy. So to the extent that we can get resources and our access commitment is about a uh, additional $25 million that we're making available to CDFIs to get in the hands of these small businesses, that's important. And then the final piece is our employees. And that is about how do we continue to lead um, and, and develop leaders who understand how to lead inclusively, which in the future, understanding issues of inclusion is not gonna be an, not gonna be an option, right? Like, like you're gonna have to understand how to lead more diverse teams, high-performing diverse teams, because that's what our society is gonna look like. And so part of what we've done is is not only sort of accelerated our leadership development programs for all employees, but to also have leadership development programs that are customized to um, women and uh, communities of color um, and really expanding how we've created more diverse pools um, for open positions and more senior positions in our organization.
1: Thank you. Thank you for giving those specific examples. I have to tell you, um, we're talking to you uh, for the for the final episode of this season, and you couldn't have brought it all together better. No, because because we've (laughs) talked about um, entrepreneurs, right? We've talked about loaning and, and, and venture funds for people of color. We've talked about how housing can kind of be called everything, like the key to everything. We, and we've talked about implicit bias yes. within the workplace. So you, um, you're you very well cast and you learned all your lines. And I just want to thank you for that.
4: Thank <laughs> you, I saved it all for the finale. I just wanted you to know like everything that we talked about, Faith, I was bringing it, saving it. We're actually doing the work now, yeah. which is to your point. Thank like, you. It's actually come to fruition over the course of all of our conversations. So I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you.
1: Now, since you're so good at um, making things accessible to my not corporate, not banking brain, I would like you to talk to me about the trade and supply chain, right? So so this can be a tricky one to nail down. It sounds a little jargony to me, but it's very it impactful. So, so when you say you're offering supply chain assistance, what does that mean? Yes.
4: It simply means we're making um, – uh Cash flow available to small businesses sooner. So your business, you 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 mail an invoice, um, faith to one of your clients for some services that you provide, and they'll send you payment terms of some sort, right? Net thirty, net sixty, sometimes net ninety. So as a small business owner, you won't get your money for sixty days or ninety days or whatever the terms are. Um, and that's a problem for entrepreneurs, right. Particularly for micro businesses, because you need your resources. Now, um, flow is a, is a critical issue, um, for micro businesses. So what we do faith is we actually go in and we purchase that accounts receivable from the small business. So they get their money right away, you know, for fee, but they get their money today versus having to wait 90 days for their, for their money. So it's a debt product, um, but because the, the way that we structure it, the, um, the, the, the debt terms are actually based on the, the credit history of the buyer, so the large corporation, right? So you send an invoice to Procter & Gamble, right? So the terms that we're giving you is actually based on their credit history, mm-hmm. right? And so it's a lot more affordable and a lot more efficient for you than if you had to go get a loan. Um, so you're getting very, very favorable terms and you're getting your resources today um, so, it's really aimed at helping to alleviate that cash flow issue that small businesses have because you can't wait 30, 60, 90 days for your money. Um, and so, it's a way for us to get money in the hands of those businesses sooner.
1: Um, this is a good time to, to introduce Carrie, who's been patiently listening. Um, Carrie Ackerman, hello there.
3: Hi. Can you? I'm glad to be here. You, I'm thrilled you're here. Can you tell us your, your job title? Sure. So I am the Critical Assessment Response and Education, stands for CARE, an acronym, the CARE Team Director at US Bank. What? It sounds v- very necessary.
1: It's got the word critical in it. Um What does that mean? What do you do?
3: Yeah. No, that's a great question. So I'm going to break it down in two. Uh, and I feel like I could talk about both worlds for hours. So we can pick and choose and go from there. Um, so part of the team focuses on workplace violence prevention. So my small but mighty team, uh, we are all trained in behavioral threat assessment and management, uh, which is a scientific process um, that was actually pioneered by the US Secret Service. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, to protect our presidents, foreign dignitaries. Uh, now it's a Um, process that's used to protect movie stars and uh, our schools and why not our employees, right? Um, So it's a process of collecting information, identifying information, assessing, and then uh, essentially the goal is mitigating risks for targeted violence against our employees. So think about uh, an employee who might be a victim of domestic violence uh, an employee who might be a victim of a stalking situation. We have unfortunately suicidal employees, and then there is always the concern around active assailant and active shooter scenarios. All of that falls within my world, um, and and my team. Uh, so that's half, and I can see Faith's face right my now. My job. So I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm like that's yeah. that's half, and I have 52 <laughs> questions
1: already. But go ahead. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then the uh, the other half uh that I'm really excited about is actually um taking on more to again to Greg's point um better be able to serve our employees kind of holistically. And that's really around that human resilience, right? So my team is also certified in mental health first aid. Um, so we are looking more into trauma management, post-trauma management, uh, stress management, coping skills. What are some mental health awareness takeaways that, that
1: you wish others across corporate America would enact in in their day-to-day
3: I think the easiest uh, the easiest recommendation that I can make and sometimes I, w- my team laughs about this but um, it managers Have to talk to their employees. And I think um, this is really taken for granted in corporate America, Uh, especially now, right? In a pandemic when everyone or a lot of employees are working remotely and you're seeing your employees or you're just talking to your employees on the phone. It can't just be, I need this on Monday. It has to be, how are you doing? How is your family? What did you do this weekend? How are you feeling? Because the fact of the matter is, if we can get managers and colleagues and peers to understand, hey, this person doesn't sound like he or she normally sounds. I notice a change in behavior. That is when something needs to happen, whether it's talking to an HR um, partner, whether it's contacting my team, whether it's reaching, you know, whether it's asking, are you okay? Something needs to happen. And I think that is at the crux of, ed- of everything is that we we have to be humans to each other. We have to talk to each other, and and it can't be. Oh, I don't I don't want to talk to that employee because that employee's weird, or I'm afraid of that employee, or I this is a really difficult employee, and I don't have time for this. Um, that that that's not going to work.
4: I, I love that and this this notion of uh, compassion that Carrie talks about, and you know, as leaders, we have to ask different questions of people. Um, The one thing that I would add to what Carrie shared is I also think faith as leaders, we actually have to be more vulnerable ourselves. Like we actually have to talk about our own struggles with mental health um, and anxiety, which gives other people permission. It opens the door for others. Like we have to be human ourselves and talk about our own struggles and the things we struggle with because that gives license to others to share as well.
1: Have you have you um, done that deliberately during this pandemic? Heck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah.
4: Because um, I have uh, you know a couple of people I'm really close to at work who you know we we have that kind of relationship where they ask how, how I'm doing and I say well I'm not doing well I'm not great I need time away I need some time I'm struggling with anxiety right now I'm you know like I've I have people that I can do that with. Um, and so i've I, I have done that um, in a way to to in in some respects help other people as well.
1: Carrie, I was wondering, um i I know you you have to um honor people's confidentiality, but but can you share any stories, um you know, a meaningful kind of success story of of someone that you or or the people you work with have? have noticed or reached out to, um, and, and because of that kind of family concern where you work, you've really helped them?
3: Yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, any time that my team receives an email that literally says, well, thank you, you've saved my life, um, it, it, it means a lot. Um, wow. And, and that, that has happened um, more than once. Um, whether it's uh, you know, helping a manager who jumps into a car of an employee who um has threatened to drive it off a bridge uh to, to talk through next steps, whether that's um working with an employee who um, you know, was held hostage in a domestic violence situation. Um we've helped employees find tracking devices on their vehicles from stalking situations. Um, there, I mean, the list goes on and on, and it's absolutely um, terrifying. And and uh, you know, it, it's it, it's the most traumatic life events that someone can go through. And my, I am super proud to say that my team is there every step al- along the way um, to help them continue to be an employee at US Bank.
1: Yeah. And your focus clearly isn't just on being an employee at U.S. Bank. You, you you keep, y'all keep using the word human. Yeah, just, just, just feeling, just feeling connected. Um, you, you, I'm, you have earned that critical in your job title.
3: Well, thank you. And if I can add one more thing, Faith, I know you asked about, um, you know, what, are, what are some of the things that employers can really focus on with regards to mental health? The other thing really is that human resilience, right? I, I think, unfortunately, we're seeing a um, a society of not really having resiliency skills. I mean, resilience isn't taught in school. It's not taught with an MBA. Um, but there's absolutely ways to teach yourself to become more resilient. Um, and I know within, uh, you know, some of the Um, post active assailant, uh, studies that are happening and, and things like that. We're, we're finding that individuals who are really hardened, who don't have that resilience skill and that coping skills and the, um, support systems and things like that. That's when we get into problems. So anytime we can really focus on how can we improve people's abilities to be resilient, to increase their coping skills, because when all of these stressors continue to climb and climb and climb with the pandemic and everything else that's going on, people's ability to cope decreases. And so, as we increase that resiliency capability, uh, that's just the that's going to continue to impact employers and employees, and um, uh, hopefully continue to keep our society as productive as possible.
1: I feel like. I feel like we should bring it in for a group Zoom hug. But thanks, y'all.
3: Absolutely.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Real Good by U.S. Bank. If you like what you heard, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you soon.